Hi. Good evening and welcome here. And I couldn't be more happy than to have, well, unfortunately, not very long to talk to Patrick, um, who has been on 5 by 15 before talking about his amazing book about the opium epidemic. But, but Patrick, I, I know Jack just said this book was published in 2009, but I mean, actually, it's so current, everything you write about. Um, let's dive right into, in a way, how you dive into the book. And that was about an event that happened on June the 6th. 1993 in Rockaway when a particular boat called the Golden Venture crashed ashore one dark night. Yeah, it was, uh, I should say, first of all, Rosie, it's lovely to be with you. I'm so glad to have the chance to chat. Thank you all for, for uh, joining us. Um, 30 years ago this summer, 30 years ago, June 6th, uh, a tramp steamer, a kind of dilapidated ship ran aground um, off the shore in Queens, New York. So if you've ever flown into LaGuardia or JFK in New York, right near there. And um, it was very cold. And all of these people started coming up out of the hold and jumping off the ship and into the surf. And there were 290 people on board. They had come all the way from Fujian province in Southeast China. And they'd actually not done it the kind of straightforward way. They'd gone the wrong way around the world. So it was a 17,000 mile journey from 120 days, which to give you a sense of context, when the Mayflower came to Plymouth in 1620, it took 60 days. And this journey took 120. And they were all paying a vast amount of money. Yes. So there at that time were a lot of people who were wanting to leave China. And I should say not China broadly so much as this one region, Fujian province. And um, there was this, this huge uh, surge of people trying to get out and get to the United States. And they weren't able to legally do so. And so they would pay human smugglers uh, which in Chinese, these people were referred to as snakeheads to get them uh, out of China and around the world to the United States. This was not human trafficking. They were going of their own free will. They knew that it would be risky. And they were committing at that time to pay $35,000 a person to get smuggled in this fashion. So that boatload was worth one hell of a lot of money. It was indeed. It was a very, very lucrative business. And there were all kinds of people who went into this business, many of them uh, unscrupulous gangsters. Um, and then in particular, there was this woman who who was at the center of my book, this woman whose name was Cheng Chui Ping, but was known in the neighborhood as Sister Ping. Everybody knew her as Sister Ping. And she was not just a snakehead, but the best, the most famous of the snakeheads. And she was one of the snakeheads behind this voyage of this ship, which was called the Golden Venture, which ran aground in 93. Uh, Sister Ping herself began in Fujian province. What was her story? How did she find herself as this chief snakehead? So interestingly, she was the daughter of a snakehead. Her father had... Um, come to the United States himself uh, much earlier. He had jumped ship, which is what people would do at that time. You have to remember that because of the, the Chinese Exclusion Act um, and a, a really, you know, the better part of a century in which the United States created all kinds of restrictions preventing people coming from China to the U.S. And then, of course, uh, in China, once once communism took hold, people didn't have the legal right to leave. And so you had a sort of frozen situation. Her father came in an earlier generation when it was very difficult to come to the United States. 
but he was involved in the trade of smuggling people. And so she kind of grew up in a smuggling family. She was very entrepreneurial. Uh, she grew up against the backdrop of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And as soon as she could, she got as far as Hong Kong and went into business in Hong Kong, starting a whole series of, you know, she had a shop, she had all kinds of an arcade, she had different types of businesses that she ran. And eventually she came to the United States legally in her case in the early 1980s. And she settled in Chinatown in New York City. She had a husband who was kind of a hapless figure, a much, in some ways, a much less impressive person who was kind of riding her coattails. But they settled in New York City and, and almost immediately she started sending for people from her home village back in China and illegally smuggling them into the US. So she had just just getting them out of China itself was quite difficult. I and mean, what how did she how did she do it? Because not everybody ended up on a golden venture going 17,000 miles, did they? No, initially it was really done uh, chiefly with planes. They would use phony documents um, and get people on planes. Sometimes they would do that out of Hong Kong. Uh, it was very often the case that people would cross the mountains of Burma, get into Thailand, um, and then they would fly out of Bangkok airport. And eventually there were so many people leaving in this way that the authorities cracked down and started really scrutinizing the phony documents. And it was at that point, this is sort of late 80s, early 90s, particularly after Tiananmen Square, when you had mm. a lot of people wanting to leave. And also a perception that in the United States, there would be sympathy for people fleeing China who could get as far as the US. You had this great surge of demand. And it was at that point that they started putting people in, in the holds of ships. But if you came uh, by plane, you didn't necessarily land yourself in America, did you? I mean, there were a lot of Central American countries that became absolutely crucial to the passage of the snakeheads. Yeah, I mean, this is part of what I find so fascinating about Sister Ping. On the one hand, she, she was this criminal mastermind. And I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that, you know, this story ends with a, a big international manhunt and she ends up in prison for the rest of her life. Um, but on the other hand, she was she was a, a, an incredibly adept businesswoman. And so she ended up with these networks that stretch from Canada to the Caribbean to Guatemala to Mexico. Um, you know, at a certain point, one of her ships um, only gets as far as Kenya. And it's sort of out of commission in Kenya. And she arranges for some of her passengers to go down to South Africa, where mm. she owns an ostrich farm to bide their time uh, until she can get them on another ship. It was a truly a business uh, of, a, of a globalized order. So what's also very fascinating that you bring out in the book is that while obviously the American authorities think that Sister Ping is the arch criminal of all times, to the Chinese, to the people in Fujian who are desperate to leave, she is also the, the mother who, who helps them complete their, their wishes. And you mentioned that thing that she made the effort to look after those people and they got them to South Africa. She's quite responsible for everybody who she agrees to take, isn't she? I mean, she is with the caveat that that some of them die. Um, so, yeah, but she does warn them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, they go into it knowing the risks. And this was actually I'm glad you asked about this, because this was for me what started me on this on this project in the first place. It was actually the first piece I ever published in The New Yorker was the piece that grew into this book. And when I learned about Sister Ping, what I learned that really struck me was that the federal government in the United States was saying, here's this woman 
who ran this criminal enterprise and she's a terrible person and people died along the way and she took all this money and she should go away to prison for life. Mm. And in Chinatown, she was revered as a living Buddha. She was this figure who was perceived as having been instrumental in helping thousands of people uh, leave one life and build a new one. And that, that kind of paradox, the idea that she could be seen in those two very different lights in these two different communities was part of what I found so magnetic about her. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I did too. And I, the, one of the other things that really intrigued me about your book was the sense that in terms of the way America and immigration generally goes, there are fashions in immigration. I mean, here in the UK, it has been very fashionable to have Ukrainian refugees, whereas the summer before, when there were just as many Syrians, somehow that never became fashionable or politically okay. And that you, you see that in terms of, like you mentioned Tiananmen, after Tiananmen, it was a little easier to, sorry, to get yourself to, to America. Yeah, I mean, it's true. And it's interesting if you look at the sort of the history of, of American immigration policy, I mean, we're dealing with this now as well because there are all these jobs. I mean, people who pick strawberries for a living, right? People who work in slaughterhouses where you actually do want a steady supply of people who will take these very thankless jobs. And so there's often a kind of economic demand for these people. And yet um, the culture tends to shift very quickly in terms of when it will accept these people and won't. And you're quite right. I mean, one of the fascinating details in this story is that you had some people who were fleeing the one child policy in China. And so yeah. they would get as far as the US and say, listen, they were going to force me to have an abortion or they were going to sterilize me because we wanted to have multiple children. And interestingly enough, Republicans in the US traditionally are pretty anti-immigrant or certainly less pro-immigrant than the Democratic Party would be in the caricature. But in this case, because there was such a strong pro-life sentiment mm -hmm. and abortion sentiment among the Republicans, uh, there was a sense that, well, well, if they're fleeing forced abortions, then we should embrace these people and let them in and give them asylum. Yes, you have a fascinating bit where Chinese person after Chinese person all claims that they, if they get sent home, they're going to be sterilized and therefore they get given asylum. But as I said at the beginning, I mean, your book is incredibly topical. Um, I mean, when you get towards the end of it, and I know it's a decade ago, but you're, you're talking about how many millions of people are somewhere in the world attempting to get somewhere else, many of them aided by the many sister pings that we have around the world. Um, when you when you were writing it, were you very aware of all the other groups? Uh, you talk about some Sikhs in Guatemala and just groups that are desperate to move. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's impossible not to. I was sort of closely focused on this one story. Um, and of course, when I was writing it, the, the, the fortunes had changed in China, right? People were not desperate to get out of China because it actually seemed as though they could stay right where they were and make a fortune. But it's interesting to realize that as recently as the 1990s, they were taking these incredible risks to get out. And of course, today, I mean, you know, you, you have this, this, uh, these terrible stories of people coming up through South America and Central America, uh, through Mexico to get into the US. You've got um, uh, people coming from North Africa, right, trying to get as far as Lampedusa off the coast of Italy. Mm -hmm. um, you've got ships sinking, you've got refugees, uh, you know, coming out of Syria and various other countries. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, the idea of these great flows of millions and millions of people who are kind of uprooted and trying to find a better place around the world and often undertaking these serious risks in doing so, that feels to me more urgent uh, now as an issue than ever. And would you find the snakeheads 
similar types of level of organization replicated in people fleeing South America, people fleeing parts of Africa? Would it be as complex and as amazing as what Sister Ping did? I don't know that it would necessarily be quite so sophisticated. Um, yes, you do have these kinds of brokers uh, in all kinds of different parts of the world moving people from point A to point B. Part of what was so intriguing to me about Sister Ping and her empire was just the sheer level of yeah. uh, sophistication, the, the multiplicity of routes that she would take and the numbers of people, I mean, thousands of people who she moved from China into the US. Do you have, uh, we're coming up to time, I'm sorry, I could go on for ages, but do you have an idea how many people she managed to move in her active career? I don't know. Um, I think, I think, I mean, thousands is an estimate, but I think that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty grounded estimate. Um, I will tell you that she eventually died. She died in a, in a federal prison in mm -hmm. Texas. Uh, in 2014. This is after the book was published in the States. And um, I went to her funeral in Chinatown. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people out on the streets. It was, you know, it was uh, a, a local hero was being buried. There, there was not a sense that this was a criminal who died in federal prison. Um, uh, it was a day of great mourning in the community. Yeah, she's a, I mean, she is a completely brilliant character to read about to anyone out there who hasn't read this book. I read it in one go and it's completely captivating because she is so complicated. I mean, quite frankly, she could run General Motors or be president. I mean, her level down to the tiniest details to the biggest picture. She seemed to be able to do it all. Indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you, Patrick, very much for joining us. And thank you for, for I'm so glad this book has now been published. And um, great to see you again. And I'm now going to hand back to Jack. Good night.